right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 22 is what we're going to be at today. 1 Samuel 22, my name's Cody King. I am the uh, lead pastor here at Redemption Calvary. It's my privilege to serve you in the scriptures every week. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor and a joy to be able to do so. And uh, I love that, you know, a big part of our DNA as a church is that we just travel through books of the Bible. And so um, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 22. If you don't have a Bible, then there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or you can also open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app, uh, and you can follow along there as well. The scriptures are in there. There's some notes in there for you as well. And uh, you can uh, save the events and, and have all that information for you uh, there. Now, one, one of the disciplines, personally, for me, that I am constantly learning about and seeking to grow in is the concept of leadership, just the idea of leadership. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear the word leadership, uh, but likely there are lots and lots of different things that float through your mind when you think about the idea of leadership. I know for me, I used to think that leadership was something that you were born with or you didn't have. You know, like, kind of like your height was predetermined, uh, you know, when you were born or your eye color or something. You know, it's like some people have blue eyes, some people don't, some people are leaders, some people are not. And what I've come to learn as I've been able to, to sort of study the concept of this is that leadership is much less like one of those predetermined set things in your life and much more like a skill that you can learn. There are lots of different things that are skills that surround the concepts of leadership. There are lots of principles that do so. There are a lot of virtues that are attached to the idea of leadership, but it's a skill that you can develop in. And one that stands at the top of the list. It's, it's maybe the number one thing. If it's not the number one thing, it's really close to being the number one thing is this, that uh, in terms of leadership is that leaders must have a willingness to take responsibility. That, that has to be right there at the top. Taking, taking responsibility is at the pinnacle of the idea of leadership. Jocko Willink, um, he's a, a Navy SEAL guy, wrote a book on leadership, extreme ownership. He said uh, this, the leader must own everything in his or her world. There's no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The, the best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. What he's challenging us with in this, this thought is that it's, it's that it's the leader's job to take responsibility even for things that are outside of their control, that they'll take responsibility even for those kinds of things. It's a, it's a crazy way to view responsibility. But here's the thing. Those who refuse to take responsibility, they have no business leading anything. And eventually, those who are in positions of leadership, who refuse to take responsibility, what they'll end up doing is they'll find themselves with nobody to lead. People will stop following them. It's been said, he who thinks he leads and has no followers is merely taking a walk, right? Like, leading has to do with somebody coming with you, right? That's the whole, the whole concept, all right? So now in 1 Samuel chapter 22, what we're looking at together today is that this principle of leadership and responsibility is at the forefront of this whole chapter, that David is moving toward responsibility while Saul is abandoning it and he's assigning blame instead. So here's our big idea of uh, 1 Samuel 22. It's this, when you move toward responsibility, you move toward God's plan for your life. 
When you move toward responsibility, you're moving toward God's plan for your life. That, that there's no way to do what God has called you to do, to be who God's called you to be, and to not move toward responsibility, all right? So let's read 1 Samuel 22. We're going to read the entire chapter. It's 23 verses, uh, and then we'll go back through and break it down. 1 Samuel 22, 1 says this, David therefore departed from, the, from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when, he was, uh, so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab and said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So when Samuel heard that David was uh, David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is no, not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up this servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Verse 9, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, in his father's house, the priest who were in, uh, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, here, here am I, here I am, my Lord. Uh, then Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered uh, the king and said, who among, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding and who is honorable in all your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or, or any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of this, uh, little or much. And in, uh, Verse 16, And the king said, uh, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand was also with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell me, tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hand uh, to strike the priest of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Enemite turned and struck the priest and killed uh, on that day, 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also, Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Verse 20, now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David and that Saul had killed the priests 
the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have, cursed, uh, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to read it, to see what it is that you have to say to us, and we pray that you would speak, Lord. God, we know that we need a word from you. We need you to speak into our lives. We need you to give us the courage to follow you, the faith to move forward, the, uh, the knowledge to be able to live a life that's honorable before you, and we need your presence to cause us to be able to do it. And so, God, we ask that you would supernaturally be here among your people, that you would meet with us, and that you would do what only you can, informing us to be more like you. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we look at 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 23, we're going to break it down into three different parts together today, okay? For the first part is uh, verses 1 through 5, taking responsibility for others. Verses 6 through 15, the second part, assigning blame to others. And then the third piece, 16 through 23, taking responsibility for self. Now, for some of you, before we jump into this, when I talk about the idea of leadership, you immediately check out. You're just like, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not in a position of leadership. Uh, and so you just, you all, you're, you're already gone. You're, you're already gone with this. Now, uh, what, you, what you might be tempted to do in this is that you will see all of this stuff that it's for them, somebody else. So some person, some leader that you have or somebody in your, a position of your life that was a leader and you're like, man, I wish they would listen to this. And, and you see their failures or maybe how they could have been better or whatever. But instead, I just want to challenge you to not do that. Take this time to see how Jesus has gifted you and equipped you and what Jesus wants you to do in your life, how you can grow in your leadership. Because here's the truth, your life has God-given purpose, God-designed reason, that, that there's this calling that God has on your life, and it has very little to do with the tasks you perform or where you get your paycheck from. Because here's the reality, your purpose is linked to how ready and willing you are to step into responsibility. That ha that's your purpose. When you think, how has God made me? What has he made me for? When God has designed me and, and put me here in this place at this time, why? why? What is he expecting from me? Well, you're only going to find that as you step into purpose or step into responsibility. There is no purpose aside from responsibility. Why? Because taking responsibility is a way that you serve other people. It's how you are able to serve others. And taking responsibility on, ex on an extreme level is critical to good leadership. Why? Because that's who our God is. Think about this. God is not responsible for the sin of Adam and Eve. Remember all the way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin entered into the world? That wasn't God's fault. The, the, the fact that you have sin and failure in your life, it's not God's fault. And yet, Jesus steps into human history. Jesus puts on human flesh, God in human flesh, for the purpose of what? Taking responsibility for your sin. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross, isn't it? He goes to the cross. He didn't die for himself. He hadn't done anything wrong whatsoever. He goes to the cross to take responsibility for your sin, for my sin, to pay the price that we couldn't pay. He pays our debt for 
us. And as we look at the contrast in David and Saul's leadership today, I want you to consider what God has placed under your care. What kind of influence has God given you? What kind of responsibility has God given into your hands? And how can you grow in that leadership? Because very truthfully, leadership is just influence. That when you boil it all down, it's just influence. And maybe you're not like, well, I'm an influencer. You know, I, maybe you're not that. You, that. Maybe that's your goal. You know, you're like, I just want to, I want to be a TikTok influencer. If that's you, I want to talk to you after service. <laughs> we got some discipleship to do. But you have influence. People look to you. Maybe a few people, maybe a lot of people, maybe people you don't even know are looking to you. You have influence. What are you doing with it? That influence is leadership. So let's look at this first piece together, taking responsibility for others. Look back at verse one. It says this, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Okay, so he departed from there. Well, what's from there? It's been, been a little bit since I was out of town last week. A couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 21. And if you remember, David's on the run in chapter 21. And, and David, he abandons his faith in the Lord and he puts his faith in his own ingenuity, his own creativity, and he lies to uh, Ahimelech in order to try to get some food and get a weapon, a weapon. And then he leaves from Nob, the city of the priests, and he goes actually to Gath, the city of the enemies, the Philistine city what, where Goliath was from. And he goes there to try to seek solace and refuge. And so he, David's faith, he places in his own cleverness and then he places his faith in the enemy and things go really, really badly to the point to where David pretends insanity in order to get out of it and God escapes him, uh, causes him to escape from Gath there. Now spiritually, David is in a very low and very bad place, but God is so good and so gracious, he steps in to rescue David. He comes to David's rescue even in that moment. And so what does David do? He goes back to Israel. And we're told there that he goes to this cave, the cave of Adullam. Now, the way that this cave of Adullam is situated, David would have to take a very specific route to get to the cave of Adullam. He would have to travel through a valley. It's the Valley of Elah. Does anybody remember anything about the Valley of Elah? That's where David fought Goliath. It's the valley where David fought Goliath. So he's leaving this very low place, this place where he has this massive failure, where his lapse of faith almost costs him his life. And he's traveling back to Israel and he's gonna go to this certain cave as God is leading him there, the cave of Adullam. And he's gotta walk through the valley where he killed Goliath. You know what he's carrying with him? The sword of Goliath. I mean, can you imagine that moment, what it must've felt like for David? To, to be in that place, to be reminded of God's provision, to be reminded of God's strength, to remind, be reminded of God's power. It's as though God is calling David back to this, reminding him, saying, I'm for you, David. Remember the impossibility of standing before this giant and the entire Philistine army when none of your countrymen would stand with you? Not even the king of Israel, King Saul, and yet I came through for you. Yet I came through for you. It's going to be a hard next few years for David, but he's reminded of God's faithfulness. He's reminded of God's victory and his sovereignty and his faithfulness to his people. Now, while 1 Samuel gives us an historical account of what happens, David actually wrote some psalms during this time as well. 
There are two specific psalms that are attributed to David during this season when he's at the cave of Adullam, Psalm 57 and also Psalm 142. And what these do is they give us insight to the emotional and spiritual place of where David was at here. Not just the historical documentation of what happened, but what was happening inside of David. Psalm 57, 1 through 2 says this, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. Do you, do you sense the, the emotional tension he has there? As he comes to this cave, as he seeks this place of refuge, and, and he realizes, I've been looking to the wrong things to save me. I, I, need, I need to seek the Lord to save me, to be my place of refuge. Psalm 142 verse 5 says this, Then I pray to you, O Lord. I say, you are my hiding or my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life. You see, God met David in that cave, and he performed a deep work in David's life, a deep work of repentance in his heart. It, it was dark. It was lonely. It was difficult. It was uncomfortable, it was uncertain, but it was necessary. John Corson says it like this, we want to be comfortable, but God knows that our souls do not grow in times of comfort, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Therefore, he puts us in places where his work can be done, where his word takes root. If you're in a cave today, you're in good company because God does deep work in hard places. Maybe you find yourself in that kind of a position. Maybe you find yourself in a cave where you're isolated or you're, you're drawn away or things didn't go the way that you thought and, and you're wondering, God, are you even for me anymore? Absolutely, God has not abandoned you. Just because it's hard, that doesn't mean God left you. Just because it's difficult, that doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer into you. It doesn't mean that you're the redheaded stepchild and he's just looking to take his fury out on somebody and you just happen to get in the way. That's just not how God works. No, he's for you. And actually, the thing that you think is against you is the thing that God's using for you, to grow you, to develop you, to mature you. David is being, in this moment, grown into a king. That's what's happening. But there's no way to grow without hardship. There's no way to develop without difficulty. There's no way forward without going through the dark places. And so God has him in this cave. And so David's family hears about it, that he's there, and they, they come to him. Now, does this strike anybody as crazy? Do you remember anything about David's family previously in the book of 1 Samuel? Remember back in chapter 16 when there was this, this holy uh, feast that was called and Samuel says to, to Jesse, he says, hey, I want to throw a feast, invite your whole family. You know who wasn't invited? David. David. <laughs> yeah. His dad was like, it's just the shepherd, he doesn't need to be here. That kid doesn't really mean anything. Remember that? Remember in the next chapter, in chapter 17, when David goes, uh, because his dad sent him to the front lines of the battle with some cheese, with some bread, with you know, some provisions, and said, hey, go check on your brothers. I want to know how they're doing. And David shows up, and you know what happens? His brothers ridicule him. They make fun of him. They tell him, what are you doing? Get out of here, you little kid. You don't mean anything to us. Remember that? And now, in David's moment of deep pain, God reunites this family. His family shows up. In this moment, his family is choosing exile to support David. What an amazing thing that takes place. 
What, a, what an incredible moment for David in this time to be encouraged at this, at this time. Now, David is also not, not just met with his family, but verse 2, it says uh, he also has 400 men at the end there, verse 2, that come with him as well. And notice the description, everyone, verse 2, the beginning, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Um, think about it like this. You're starting an organization. Are, is this a description of the kind of people that you want in, on your team? Like, yes, I'd like some uh, really in debt, indebted people. Um, That'd be great. I, I'd love some people who are just discontent. You know, they just, they're just complaining all the time about everything. That'd be awesome. I'd love to lead those people. <laughs> some really discouraged people, some really down people. That'd be awesome. Let's, let's do that. Uh, I, I want to sign up for that. These are not the kind of people that necessarily you would do. But notice that, here, here's what I want you to notice. The reason these people are in this position is because of Saul's failed leadership. That's why they're there. Now, there are times when we're going to feel this. We're going to feel distressed. We're going to be indebted for different reasons. We're going to be discontented for different reasons. But this is being uh, ex extrapolated to a great degree because Saul has failed leadership. And notice what it says there in verse 2 about David, what happened. It says, he became captain over them. This is vitally important. David steps into a role of leadership. What he, does, what he could do at this time is he's got a bunch of people who are sort of forming a mob, and he's like, look, we can have a band of thugs just go wreak havoc on Saul. Just go do whatever you want, guys. No, instead, he assumes responsibility. This idea of being captain over them is he takes a position of leadership and uh, serves them by assuming responsibility for them. David Guzik says it like this. But we notice also that it was very important for the Lord not just to call David and to anoint him, right? Those were done earlier, but to do a training work in his life, to make David into a man of God, into the, king, the kind of king that could rule over the nation in a godly and wonderful way. See, this was a critical step in the development of David. If David couldn't lead 400 men, how's he going to lead an entire nation? He needed to grow into this position of leadership. And so God gives him these people. Now, the lives of these men are a mess, you know, but they didn't stay that way. These very men are referred to later on in 1 Chronicles 11.10 as mighty men of valor. That's what they became. These discouraged, discontented, indebted, um, distressed people, they became mighty men of valor. And how did they do it? They did it by spending time with David. That's how they did it. They, they spent time with David. Do, do you see here an amazing picture of Jesus? That as we spend time with the captain of our salvation, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he leads us. He assumes responsibility for us, and then he literally transforms us. Remember in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were standing before the, the council, the, 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 uh, the high priest and the, the uh, Hebrew council there, and uh, they're giving this really articulate defense of their faith and why they're doing what they're doing, and the, the, um, the spiritual leaders at the time, they're blown away. And they say, I think it's verse 12 of chapter 4. They say, the, who, what are these guys doing? They, they're uneducated and untrained men, but they recognize they've been with Jesus. They didn't need training. They didn't need education. They'd been with Jesus. Now that doesn't mean don't go to school and don't learn things. What it means is that Jesus is the one who changes you, not information. That as you're with Jesus, he, he does this tremendous work within you to literally put his character inside you. 
That's, that's what we're aiming at. That's what we need. And so David, he recognizes something in verse 3. It says, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he goes there in order to drop off his parents. Basically, David, uh, he knows his parents can't live in exile, uh, and so what does he do? He takes them to Moab. Now, Moab, this is important and and interesting, and the reason that David probably chose this is because this is the land of his great-grandmother, Ruth. This is where Ruth was from. So David takes uh, them back there. We, we don't know if it's the same city necessarily or not, but he takes them back to the land of Moab, and uh, he says, hey, you know, will you take care of my parents as long as I'm on the run? Notice what it says there in verse 3, though. He says, please let my father and mother come here with you. Notice this part, till I know what God will do for me. Do you see that there? This is a huge shift in the heart of David, where his, his faith is being revitalized back into the Lord. It's hard, it's difficult, it's, it's, it's you know, cave-ridden, and yet his heart is being drawn back to faith in the Lord. He's trusting in, in the Lord. But this, this uh, prophet Gad shows up in verse 5 and says, hey, listen, you can't stay here. You've got to go back to Judah. You've got to go back to Judah. And so uh, David goes back, he goes to a place called Hereth, which is about three miles, it's a, a, a forest, about three miles away from the cave of Adullam. So he's in the same basic area that he was. All right, so now, not only do we see, number one, that, that uh, David is taking responsibility, not just for these men, but also for his family to care for them, but we see, secondly, that there's this idea of assigning blame to others in verses 6 through 15. Look at verse 6, it says this, when Saul heard uh, that David... And the men who were with him had been discovered. So think of it like this. There's this thing. I don't know if you think this way, but I think like in movies, okay? So I'm, I'm picturing David and his men. They're leaving the stronghold. What's the stronghold? It may be uh, in Moab on the eastern side of the Dead Sea is where David would have gone. Uh, there's some, you know, cliffs there that are very, uh, very uh, you know, strategic um, geographically for a nice stronghold where this king probably was. That could have been the stronghold that David was in. Or if you go on the other side of the Dead Sea, that's where this place called Masada is. It's like this natural fortress. Herod actually built a summer um, palace there in Masada. Um, and if you go to Israel, you can actually go there and uh, uh, experience Masada. It could have been there. There's a number of places that it could have been. But Gad says to David, you can't stay here. You got to go back. And so David starts traveling back. And, and as you see the men sort of marching off, the, it's like the camera pans out, and then it zooms in. And what it zooms in on is Saul sitting under a tree in the, out in, out in the, uh, you know, something like a battlefield with a war council of his officers and officials around him. And he's sitting there, and in his hand as a scepter is his spear. It's kind of an ominous sort of a thing that's taking place here, and it zooms in. On this. Now, Saul calls his uh, official government meeting, and he's doing so to accomplish three things. Notice what he says here. He says, uh, verse 7 Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? 
All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There's not one of you who's sorry for me. Oh, poor Saul. Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So he gets, he's got three things on his agenda. This is what Saul wants to talk about. Number one, he wants to reinforce tribalism. Notice how he refers to them. You Benjamites. Here now, you Benjamites. Why is this significant? Well, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so all of the leadership in the government of Israel are just from his tribe. That's it. He has no Latin national leadership is what this is revealing to us. No one else around him is from any of the other tribes. And he's juxtapositioning himself against David. You know what tribe David's from? Judah. So he's saying, you're of Benjamin, he's of Judah. Let's reinforce this tribalism. If that guy takes charge, we're out. Right? So he reinforces this tribalism. His royal court is just his tribe, and, and he's positioning them, uh, pitting them against Judah. Number one, or number, that's number one, he reinforces tribalism. Number two, he entices them with bribery. It's the second thing that he does. He says, is David going to give you fields? Is he going to give you position? Is he going to give you power? Is he going to be able to do these kinds of things? If you want the things to keep going the way that they're going, then I need to stay in power is basically what he's saying. And I, what, what you get out of it is if I'm in power, you get all the benefits of the awesomeness. So don't let David get into power. And then thirdly, he pretends victimhood. He says, there's a conspiracy and all of you are in on it and my son is in on it and my son wants me to be uh, executed and to be assassinated by David and he's trying to help him and he creates this entire false narrative in order to get these guys to go his way. Warren Wiersbe says in, uh, in his commentary, David attracted men who were willing to risk their lives for him, but Saul had to use bribery and fear to keep his forces together. Just two very different kinds of leaders. Saul's mind is so twisted with sin and self that he attempts to, to trade places with David in order, in order to justify what's clearly insane. He, he literally looks at the way that David is going and, and, he, and the things he's doing to David and says, that's what David's doing to me. He's trying to switch places. And, and, and maybe in his mind, he thinks it's true. Maybe he actually believes his insanity. But Saul, in this moment, is refusing to take responsibility. And so all that's left, if he refuses to take responsibility, is to hand out blame. That's all that's left. If you won't take responsibility, that's all, you, that's all that you can do. Hand out blame to somebody else. It's not my fault. It's got to be their fault. It's not my issue. It's not my sin. It's not that I abandoned the Lord and God said, no, I'm removing the kingdom from you because of your lack of repentance. Instead, no, David's evil and he's trying to kill me, which he never was. He has to make up this story in order to somehow justify his insanity. Now, I'm pretty sure this was an intense moment for all of Saul's officials, right? Like Saul has proved his willingness to try to kill his chief captain, and son-in-law, David. He's also, in the, in the, previously in chapter 20, if you remember, he actually tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, by throwing a spear at him. And so here, David, or here Saul is sitting around with all his men, and, and he's like holding his spear, and he's like, you guys are all conspiring against me. I mean, this is, this is tense, right? They're, they're probably all thinking, all right, who's going to get the spear? So he's going to chuck this thing at somebody. And so verse 9 then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, 
I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. So Doeg, what he does in this moment is he recognizes an opportunity to stand out and climb the corporate ladder. Here's my chance. Here's the thing I've been waiting for. Saul is in this crazy state. He's in this really highly emotionally charged situation, and I can capitalize on this. And he sees this opportunity, and with wicked mastery, he redirects Saul's attention and his suspicion away from him and the other guys toward the priests. He says, you know what? It's not us, Saul. We're not conspiring against you. It's those bad priests. Those are the guys who are doing this. And so what does Saul do? He demands that all the priests come to him to pronounce their judgment for their rebellion against the treason that he's sure they committed. So verse 11, so the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's house, and the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. So he brings them together in order to accuse them. And Saul says, verse 12, here now, son of Ahitub. So he's trying to intimidate him. Notice the way he refers to him. He doesn't refer to him as his, his, his name. He refers to him as the son of Ahitub. He doesn't call him who he is. This guy's the actual high priest, right, in, in uh, Israel. And he's, he just has no respect for the guy. And he just calls him, he tries to degrade him and lower him. And the way he's speaking to him is like he's in trouble. Something's wrong with him. And he's, he's uh, yelling at him, essentially, and berating him in this moment. Arpane Smith uh, says this, Doeg's suggestion that the priests were David's allies at once arouses all Saul's worst passions. As if he had determined from the first upon the massacre of the whole body, he sends not merely for Ahimelech, but for every priest at Nob. Now, Ahimelech has no idea what's going on because why? David kept him in the dark. In chapter 21, when David showed up, he talked to Ahimelech, he lies to him. He doesn't tell him what's going on. He keeps him in the dark, and David probably thinks that he's actually doing Ahimelech a service by keeping him in the dark about all this, and yet, and yet uh, it actually puts him at greater risk. And he defends himself with four valid reasons, right? Look there uh, at verse um, 14. Basically, um, Saul accuses him of conspiracy. In verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding? And who is honorable in all your house? He gives a fourfold defense of why there's no reason for him to not help David. You see, uh, David is faithful. I mean, think about it, Saul. Of all your servants, David's the most faithful. Why would I, why would I assume something bad about him? Also, if you remember, He's married to your daughter, bro. Like, he's your son-in-law. This is, uh, what, what do you want from me? He's a capable man. Wherever you send him, he goes and takes care of any issues that you have, and he's honorable in all your house. And this moment, what should have talked sense into Saul, remember chapter 19 when Jonathan did the same thing? When, when Saul wanted to kill uh, David, and Jonathan said, Dad, listen, it's, you can't do this. David's an honorable man. This moment should have talked sense into Saul, except it sent him into a rage. He couldn't hear anything good about David. He couldn't experience anything uh, that, that could have been uh, said positively about David. I mean, if, if Ahimelech maybe had just said, hey, I don't know what you're talking about, he probably would have been okay. But because he didn't know Saul's you know, rage monster was going off, 
he, uh, he, he kind of steps into a trap. And this is where David set him up for failure in this moment when, when he lied to him earlier. All right, thirdly and finally, not only taking responsibility for others, assigning blame to others, but now taking responsibility for self, 16 through 23. Verse 16, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. What a crazy thing. Saul rejects Ahimelech's defense. He basically says, you're lying to me. You're lying to me, and he pronounces a death sentence on him, uh, not for just him, but for all the priests. Now, this is crazy. This is like an illegal kind of a, a trial that's taking place. It's not even a, a trial. It's uh, an unlawful kind of a thing. He's, he's uh, executing them against what God's word actually says, and he's doing something that's extremely ungodly. So he turns in verse 17, he says to, his, uh, to the guards, this is basically Saul's bodyguards. He tells them, hey, I want you to, to do this, kill these guys. Now, Saul's bodyguards, think about, think about it like this. Any, any official, any high official, think of the leader of a nation and think about the kind of bodyguards they want around them. Probably the baddest dudes you can find, right? You don't want the lazy guys who are couch potatoes, who are, you know, just like, if you run too fast, then you can get around them. You know, like he doesn't want those guys. These, these guys are elite killing machines. These are very dangerous men. And Saul says, kill the priests. And what do they do? Nothing. They refuse to, they refuse to do it. They stand and refuse to do it. Now this is very much like when Saul tried to execute Jonathan in chapter 14. You see a lot of this replaying in Saul's life. It's very much like when he tried to execute Jonathan and people wouldn't do it. And, and this, again, should have been another wake-up call. Number one, remember who David is. Number two, even your elite bodyguards won't do what you're asking them to do. Saul, wake up. You're going downhill quick. You're moving towards something that you don't want to be moving toward. And so what does he do? He hardens himself. He doesn't listen to these guys. They, you know, they... They won't do it at the end of, their, end of verse 17. Is the servants of the king wouldn't lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. So what does he do? Well, Saul knows that Doeg is hungry for recognition and more than ready to do it. So verse 18, he tells him, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck, all the, uh, struck the priests and killed that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Um, here in this, in this moment, he murders these 85 men. Now, see how it says they're wearing a linen ephod? These are, these are unarmed men. They're wearing kind of like, it's hard to describe, like just linen clothes, you know, like linen pants, and they're not ready for fighting, essentially is what's going on. They're doing the priest's work. They're unarmed. They're nonviolent men, and they're just hacked down, just, just hacked down in cold blood, innocent men. Doeg is drunk with power and violence, and through satanic influence, he, he goes to the city of Nob and destroys the entire city, kills all their families, murders their wives, children, babies, all of their livestock are destroyed, all their possessions are taken. He just tragically runs through these people. And this tragedy, this tragedy, though it's fulfilled, it's done in this, this very evil kind of a way, it's actually a partial fulfillment of what we were told, of what God told Eli back in chapter 2. If you remember when Eli failed to discipline his sons, God said, judgment is coming upon your household, and the priesthood is going to be removed from your family. 
And your, your family, actually, all the men, they won't live to an old age. They're going to they're gonna die young. And so here we see a partial fulfillment of this. And later on in uh, 2 Samuel, the, the complete fulfillment of, of this takes place. And even though this tragedy happens, it's a partial fulfillment of what God said would take place. Now, it's very possible, as we think about this for a minute, for government to use their power and their position in ungodly ways to abuse and sin against the people that they're there to serve. Do you see what's happening here? See how this is, see how this is it's the government perpetuating this sinful thing. Sometimes we tend to think of governments as these arbitrary things that are unable to sin, unable to do what's evil, but it's, it's not true. It's, it's absolutely possible for the government to be in a position of ungodliness and sin and abuse of the people. You see, any authority, your authority, the position of authority that you find yourself in, maybe in your home or at work or, you know, within culture or society or, you know, maybe your boss or our governing authorities as well. All of it only works well with at least three biblical conditions for the good use of authority in place. There, there are three things that, that, that the Bible says that at least these three have to be in place. There's more things that need to be in place, but if these three things aren't in place, then, then government authority runs rampant. So, so you're probably going to be able to see this pretty easily when you look at our government, but I want you to not just assign the application there. Think about your authority. Think about your responsibility, okay? Number one, the first thing that has to be in place is that the righteous must be in power. The righteous must be in power. What this means is that, that, that when people who are righteous are in power, they understand good and evil as defined by God. That, that, that they don't get to decide it, that God gets to decide it, and they fight accordingly. They have the courage to stand for what's right and to stand against what's wrong. The righteous must be in power. That, that's when good authority, a good use of authority takes place. Secondly, is this, that those who are in power see themselves as servants, not as authoritarians, not as dictators. That authority exists to preserve good by preventing evil and protecting those who are under their authority. That's why authority exists. Authority does not exist for you to use people to get your thing. Does that make sense? Authority exists for you to serve those who are under your authority. So here's the question. Who's under your authority? How do those little kids act in your life? How are they growing up? How are they developing? What's happening in their lives? How are men, how are your wives? What, what are they like? What, what, what's happening within their souls? Are they growing to be more like Christ? Uh, maybe you have a position of leadership or authority at work. How do the people around you under your authority work? Are you abusing them with your authority or are you serving them with your authority? Authority is a powerful thing that can be used if used in a godly way. Thirdly, not only the righteous need to be in power and those who are in power serve, but thirdly, those in power must self-limit. Self-limit. This kind of ties together with the, with the idea of serving, but authority brings opportunity and temptation to serve self, doesn't it? Because you answer to you, <laughs> right? Especially if you're the highest authority in any given situation. If you understand it correctly, you're not, though, right? 
Because all authority is borrowed from the Lord. He's the one that's in authority. And so if, if those in authority see themselves as under the Lord, then they sacrifice instead of take. And so here, this, this authority is being abused and the government is trampling the people that they're there to serve and protect and care for instead of serving them. Verse 20. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Abiathar finds David. And while there's no way that David could have known what Saul would do, he takes full responsibility because he knew he lied about it. He knew at the very least he set up uh, um, Abiathar to be in harm's, excuse me, Ahimelech to be in harm's way, needlessly. David writes Psalm 52 about Doeg and his villainous ways. Psalm 52 verse four through five says this, you love to destroy others with your words, you liar, but God will strike you down once and for all. He will pull you from your home and uproot you from the land of the living. Can you, can you see the righteous indignation that wells up within David against Doeg? If David here in this moment refuses the responsibility, then he chooses the same road that Saul is going down, and he can't grow. He, you see, he can't become the man that God is calling him to be. And so when he sees this tragedy, he doesn't say, well, Saul is such a jerk. Instead, he says, it's my fault. That's how leaders think. That's what leaders do. That's how you step into that responsibility. John Maxwell says this, the highest reward that you have for growth is not what you get from it, but what you become by it. That's the highest reward that you get, what you become. God is putting you in these positions. God has given you this influence, this leadership, this responsibility. Why? To grow you, to mature you, to develop you. You see, growth is produced out of the hardship, out of the trial, out of the cave, and the path is the way of responsibility. That's how you get it. Look back at verse 23 as we conclude. I just want to point out one final thing. It says this. Notice what David says to Abiathar. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. See, the same way that David doesn't just take responsibility for himself, but now takes responsibility for Abiathar. David takes responsibility for him. Jesus wants to take responsibility for you. Do you see what David says there? Jesus is saying the same thing to you. You see, the road ahead is uncertain. Everything is on the line. The enemy is seeking your life. But Jesus' message for you, for me, is safe. Is this, with, stay with me, do not fear you will be safe with me. That's the message of Jesus. If you will trust Jesus, if you will go toward him, if you will uh, allow his leadership to influence your leadership, if you will see your need for his blood to pay your debt, then you can stay with him. Then he, he will assume responsibility for you and you'll be safe. You'll be safe with Jesus. So the, the, the question is, will you trust Jesus? Because you can with your whole life. He's already proved that he's willing to give everything for you. He'll take care of you. He'll shepherd your soul. He will, he will comfort you when you need it. He'll correct you when you need it. He'll encourage you when you need it. He'll challenge you when you need it. You can trust Jesus. Stay with him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it, to see what you have to say, and we pray that, God, you would cause us to be people who lead the way that you do. Lord, show us how we can step toward responsibility, not away from it. Show us how we can be a people who are like you, who abandon ourselves in favor of you and who you say we are. Lord, change us, challenge us, transform us, and cause us to be a people marked by the blood of Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.